Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to educating and empowering men to address erectile dysfunction, improve confidence, and enhance the satisfaction in their relationships. This podcast is brought to you by ErectionIQ.com. Learn more at ErectionIQ.com. Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. I am Mark Goldberg, Certified Sex Therapist. I am deeply passionate about working with men like you to help resolve their ED. Today, I'm excited to host Dr. Rachel Rubin. Dr. Rubin is a board-certified urologist and a sexual medicine specialist. She is among a handful of physicians who are trained in sexual medicine for all genders. She is the education chair of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, otherwise known as ISWISH. Dr. Rubin maintains a private practice in the Washington, D.C. area, where she provides compassionate and tailored care to the patients that she works with. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Rubin. Oh, it's my honor. I'm so happy to be here. This episode, what we really want to tackle is what every guy needs to know about a female partner's sexual health and sexual function. This is a really important episode, in my opinion. Not only do I think that people should be educated about themselves and about their partners, but I do think that some of the anxiety that contributes to sexual dysfunction stems from misinformation and off-kilter or off-base expectations of sex and of people's partners. Hopefully, we can correct some of that today. So before we get into the topic, Dr. Rubin, can you tell us a little bit more about your practice? Yeah, happy to. I'm actually in the process of building my very own private practice. I just saw, I just opened my doors on Monday and it's now Wednesday, so I'm slowly bringing patients in. And really, my practice is um, developed because I don't. Be- I believe medicine is very broken. I believe the idea that you can have a medical visit in 10 minutes once a year, and that can fully encompass everything you need for your quality of life goals is ridiculous. And so I love spending time with patients. I love really getting to know patients. I'm not a therapist. I am a urologist, which means I'm biologically based in everything that I do. And I believe very much in what uh, we all call the biopsychosocial model in that everyone is uh, made up of their biology and also their situation and their psychology. And we have to see people that way. And so I, I sit with my patients and I really try to dig into their medical histories, you know, uh, what their goals are, what their partner's situation is, what their, you know, um, surgeries that they have and medications that they're on and how it all plays together, which is like being a detective. I always joke, I'm like Dr. Rubin, sex detective, uh, because it's really a puzzle because I have to not only really understand what's going on with that person, but also the partner and how does that work together? So being trained in all genders, I can really help whatever love triangle comes into my office and look at it from a unique perspective. Perspective. So my practice is um, we spend a lot of time with people. We really want to build them teams. Uh, I'm so thrilled to meet uh, meet you, um, Mark, because you're not too far from me. And I have to find people the right uh, mental health providers, the right sometimes physical therapists, the right cancer doctors. You know, I, I have to find them the right people that work. You know, for them. And we talk so much in this podcast about how multifactorial uh, human sexuality is, and and. Uh, between the the biological side and the psychosocial relationships, there's so many factors. And to meet a doctor like yourself, who really has that appreciation and that desire to just give the time to the patients that they need to really dive into that is um, a real breath of fresh air. So we're excited to kind of get into today's topic. So 
Dr. Rubin, can you give us an overview? And I know this is really tough because there are so many people on planet Earth, and this is going to apply differently in so many different cases, but we want a general overview of the sexual process for a woman that generally leads to a satisfying sexual experience, whether that's on her own or with a partner and or leading to orgasm. How does this look when things are going according to plan, so to speak? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's obviously quite a spectrum and, you know, there are all sorts of ways to have pleasure. And I think I really try to work with patients to say, well, what, you know, what do you want sex to look like? What do you think sex should look like? I get women who come to my practice and say, oh, Dr. Rubin, I'm broken. I can't have an orgasm during penetration. And that's when I say, wait a minute, no, you're totally normal. Um, you know, about like a, a more than 80% of women don't have orgasms with penetration. So Hollywood is making it all up. Pornography is making it all up. It's all fake news. Uh, and so really understanding quote unquote, what is normal. And the answer is if something gives you pleasure and you enjoy it, do more of that. Um, you know, I'm all up for exploration, for finding new ways to have pleasure, for finding new devices, new technology to help enhance a couple's or couple or multi-partner enjoyment of sexuality. It's what works for you in your life, in your um, relationships. And so when you talk about quote unquote normal, I think we also have to be careful about not, um, there are many, a, a percentage of, um, of people who can't orgasm, both um, probably more common on the female side than on the male side. But that being said, we don't have full data on that. But you know, I while the quest for orgasm is an important one, and actually one of the more difficult problems we see in clinical practice when someone comes to me and says, Dr. Rubin, I have never and cannot have an orgasm. It's actually quite a, a, a mystery for me because we have to sit down and say, okay, are you not, is there something wrong with the anatomy? right? Are you not trying the right way? Isn't an education problem? Is it a reflex problem? Because an orgasm is essentially just like a reflex, right? Just like you can tap your knee and it, it, it uh, jumps up. If you uh, stimulate for some, for most women, the clitoris, and usually it's externally, that can trigger this whole body, almost seizure-like activity where all of your muscles can contract, and then you feel a sense of pleasure. It's essentially a seizure, but I have to understand, is it an education problem? Is it a neurological problem? Is it a medication problem? You know, there's so many factors that go into 100%. it. A hundred percent. So, so Dr. Roman, I really appreciate recognizing that. And, and I think we worded the question very specific, pleasurable and or orgasm, because not everybody achieves orgasm, both men and women really not, don't necessarily achieve orgasm with a pleasurable sexual experience. But can you kind of take us through maybe sequentially as, as a physician, what would be going right, let's say, in other words, um, you know, with men, we talk a lot about blood flow. We talk about, you know, the mind's role in, you know, signaling to the body through the autonomic nervous system, signaling that blood should flow, um, you know, down into the genital regions. What is like the general overview of the yeah. female side of that. The fun part, Mark, is that it's exactly the same body parts, a hundred percent the same. And so when we are all 
in utero, okay, our body parts are exactly the same. And the penis and the vulva are exactly the same, made up of all the same parts. So the scrotal skin is the same as the labia majora. The clitoris and the penis are exactly the same. They're made up of the same muscle tissue. The penis is made up of smooth muscle. The clitoris is made up of smooth muscle. If we chop it off, we look under a microscope. I hope we don't do that. You know, all for all, to all listeners, don't do that. Um, but if you look under a microscope, it looks exactly the same. And so clitoris arouse, right? They get hard, they fill with blood um, and you do get clitoral erections, if you will, but it's not actually anywhere near the vagina. And so whereas uh, um, penetration can feel pleasurable for many partners, for many women, and they enjoy it, the majority, more than 80%, don't experience orgasmic orgasm from penetration. Now, again, just like men can have orgasm in multiple ways, right? Some men enjoy prostate stimulation. That is also true for women where some can enjoy anterior or the top of the vagina stimulation or that G-spot idea. And it's very similar because that is actually female prostate tissue. And so just like you have a spot in your prostate that men uh, can enjoy, but don't always enjoy, not all men go after that spot. Similar in women, there are some who enjoy the top of the vagina stimulated, which means during penetration, they may have more pleasure and even orgasmic response. And so I think you have that arousal, which is engorgement in the female, just like an erection in men, you have orgasm, the same as a male uh, orgasm. And ejaculation is a very controversial topic in a, in a female. Women do secrete a little bit of ejaculatory fluid, but anatomically, we don't have large reservoirs like men do. Men have, it's getting all uh, anatomical on you, but men have seminal vesicles that hold the fluid um, that is semen, right? Whereas women don't have those large pockets of fluid. So if a woman it orgasms and a large amount of fluid comes out, it's urine. Okay. So just like the body contracts everywhere, you have a seizure, your bladder is a muscle. It contracts and then urine comes out. It doesn't hurt anyone. It's not dangerous. In fact, most porn channels say it's like, you know, better than God. And it's some kind of gift that, that people can have, but some, some women are very bothered by it. Okay. So what, what I'm gathering from that is that there is a corollary or a very similar overlapping process that happens physiologically. Not all the parts exactly line up. Like you mentioned, you know, the clitoris is, is largely external, at least the way we stimulate it is largely external. Uh, whereas men have all of that kind of combined into one between, um, you know, for, for their experience, but at, at the starting point, we all are given the same starting ingredients and then they kind of get sliced and diced a little bit differently. Absolutely. What will I say? What I will say for all your Peloton enthusiasts who are listening and, and listening all while they're doing their Peloton rides or bicycling, um, every man who sits on a bicycle seat is crushing the internal penis. And every woman who sits on a bicycle seat is crushing her internal clitoris. So the clitoris is an internal organ. It goes all the way down to your butt bones. The penis is an internal organ, half of its outside, half of its inside that goes all the way down to your butt bones. So that perineum, sort of the area behind the scrotum, uh, that's all penis tissue. Similarly, um, if a woman sits on her sits bones, that's all clitoris in there, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah. So with that in mind, what are some of the common sexual function challenges that a woman coming to see you might be presenting with or might be facing? 
Yeah, the most common. So in men, obviously, we all talk about erectile dysfunction. Your podcast would not exist without it. And it is the most common complaint we see for men. 50% of 50-year-old men have erectile dysfunction, 60% of 60-year-old men, and it goes on and on. So if you're a 75-year-old man with no erectile dysfunction, consider yourself in the lucky 25%. Now, for women, the data seems to show that the majority of women have low libido issues or desire issues. And so their interest in sex changes. And when you, it's probably about 40% of women actually meet the criteria of having low sexual desire. But when you ask, are you bothered by your low sexual desire, which is what makes it a medical problem, only about 10% say that they are bothered by it. So we do have data to show that there is a high incidence of arousal problems, orgasm problems, usually about 20%. Uh, but again, not that many are bothered by it. And sexual pain is a very big problem. Um, there, I've seen one report that as high as 75% of all women have had sexual pain at some point in their lives, which is just astounding. Dr. Rubin, it kind of it interests me because a lot of what we talk about around male sexual dysfunction, certainly around erections, not necessarily with ejaculatory disorders, but certainly with erectile disorders, we talk a lot about blood flow. And yes, the mind has a role in helping that process along and you know, desire and stimulation, the role it plays in impacting the body. Does blood flow or blood flow challenges also play a role in female sexual dysfunction? The data seems to show to a less degree. Um, and so basically when you give a woman Viagra, right? Uh, it is a muscle relaxer that increases blood flow. And so they did, as soon as Viagra came out in 1998, they said, well, what happens if we get, let's give it to women. And they did a number of studies and it showed that it increased blood flow and arousal and it put, but it didn't necessarily change women of having better sex. The data was not overwhelming that it, it was not Viagra for Viagra for men was not as good as Viagra for women, unfortunately, because there was more to it. There was more to, to that brain stimulation, that dopamine response. And so there's a lot of theories behind that, but women, um, there's a lot of arguments in our field, very interesting arguments about do women have innate desire? You know, this idea of I'm just, I want sex now. I am interested in intimacy now, or do they have more of responsive desire? The, my partner initiates, I watch a sexy movie. I read a sexy book. Oh, now I I'm interested. And now I can have an enjoyable sexual experience. And when you really dig through the data, women have both, right? Sometimes in their lives, they have more in, innate desire and sometimes they have more responsive desire. And, and it kind of increases and decreases depending on, on where they are. And, and it may be different for each woman and even the woman herself. And I think, again, there are women fluctuate hormonally throughout their cycles, throughout childbirth, throughout menopause. And so it's very hard to capture like this is you and you are the same always throughout your lifespan. It's going to change. There's going to be a highs and lows. And there are biological reasons why that's happening. Um, and we have some biological solutions. And of course, also lots of psychosocial solutions, because if you tell people if you give people things to read about sex, if they listen to things about sex, if they watch pornography, if their uh, intentions are, you know, go on vacation and have, have a good time, they're going to have better sex, right? It's going to be way more fun. So for our male listeners out there who may have a partner who is you know, struggling with arousal, sexual desire, maybe the partner's distressed, maybe they're the ones who are distressed about their partner's lack of desire. In, in your experience, what are some of the ways that a, a partner can be supportive um, and approach these topics from a supportive way? I love that. And I think 
communication is the key to good sex, right? It seems sounds cheesy, but the more we can really highlight and understand what's going on and we can educate people and we don't, we don't assume what our partner is going through. We don't assume what our partner is thinking. And we actually have adult conversations that use adult words that may make us uncomfortable, but sometimes we can really work on it. Um, That's the key to figuring all these things out because we all have challenges. And as you are with a partner, challenges are going to come up, right? Look at COVID. We've had an entire world with what one single challenge that we've never faced anything like it before. So challenges are going to happen and how you as a couple navigate those challenges is really will speak highly to the solutions that you can find because the goal of sex is fun. And if you're not having fun, if it's giving you anxiety, if it's giving you stress, if it's making your relationship worse, right? you're not succeeding. You're not doing it right. You know? And so, um, I see a lot of couples who have fertility issues where when you, you know, when you come to me because sex becomes a job where you're trying to make a baby and it's not fun anymore. And so I really try to take a step back and say, okay, how do we make this fun? Because it just seems like it's stressing everybody out. You all seem like failures, you know, what a terrible thing. And like, how can we take a step back and remember what the point of all of this is? It's adult playtime, right? Unless we're having fun, We're not doing it right. What are some of the most common misconceptions that you encounter, you have heard about female sexuality? I think one of the biggest misconceptions that I like to focus on is that none of it is biological. I think too often, um, and as someone who sees all genders, uh, when we talk about men's sexual health, we often say it's all biological. There's no psychosocial component. There is nothing. Obviously, you don't agree with that, you know, based on you know all of your work. But it's you know, if you read a newspaper or magazine, it's all blood flow, right? And and uh, on the female side, it's all psychosocial. It's all you know, uh, needing um, date nights and and glasses of wine and just relax, and everything's going to get better. And that is. Uh, so frustrating because it's so far from the truth. And, and really, we have to do a better job of educating and doing research and really putting things out there on the biology. And um, that's probably the biggest misconception. Also, that women orgasm from penetration. That is ridiculous. Whoever invented that uh, really uh, should be held accountable and, and, and has done such a disservice to good sex. You know, the word foreplay let's take that away. That doesn't make any sense. Why do we say, why is it foreplay for a woman and sex for a man, right? Sex is only successful if a man orgasms inside a woman who invented that. That's ridiculous. It should all be called sex. Yeah. So our listeners can uh, look at Freud as one of the, (laughs) uh, one of the people who are uh, famous for uh, promoting uh, that type of view. I believe that he referred to the clitoral orgasm as, as an immature orgasm. Oh, he did a lot of bad, a lot of bad, a lot of bad things for, um, you know, we have to learn. The problem is we have to learn to move on. We have to learn to say, okay, they had an idea back then. We have learned what it really is like, and we're always evolving and learning new information and, um, you know, changing our minds. So we got to get, we've got to move past that, those Freudian ideas. Yes. And, you know, I think our, our you know, collective media from, you know, television to uh, movies and certainly pornography has not helped shift away from some of these misconceptions. There's a phenomenon that I know I see in my office. I have no doubt that you see in your office. I would love to get your take on this. And that is like co-occurring sexual dysfunction. There seems to be that sometimes when one partner uh, begins to struggle with or has been struggling with 
some form of sexual dysfunction, whether that's desire, whether that's erectile dysfunction, uh, sexual pain, the other partner will sometimes develop almost like a co-occurring or a responsive sexual dysfunction. I'm wondering what your take is on that. How does that happen? Well, you know, we see that all the time, of course, and and there's some interesting data to go along with that. But basically, um, you know, if every time you try to penetrate your partner and she's wincing and she's gritting her teeth and she looks like she's just totally dissociating to go to another place because she's saying, honey, hurry up. Let's I wish you had premature ejaculation. Let's get this over with because you're really hurting me. The penis does not like that, right? The penis responds to stress in a very, you know, like the rest of your body does. It contracts things. It runs away. It's afraid of of pain and stress. And so all the blood will leave it and you'll lose the erection. Most partners don't want to hurt their other, their partner. If a man has penile curvature and has really difficult time getting an erection, and when he does get an erection, it's so curved that he can't fit it into his partner. Well, the partner feels terrible because she loves her partner and she doesn't want her partner feeling terrible. And she doesn't really care whether there's penetration or not, because you could use a device for penetration. You could do external stimulation. There's lots of ways to have pleasure, but she feels so bad that she can't give her partner the pleasure that they were used to. And so that makes her feel bad about herself, even though it's not, it's an anatomical biological problem, but she can't fix it. You know, our partners love to fix each other's problems. And sometimes you can't fix diabetes. You can't fix high blood pressure. You can't fix erectile dysfunction. You know, you need some medical management for these things, but that doesn't make it hurt less. And so, you know, um, I don't know about you, but I, how often do you put your hand on a hot stove? Not very often. Not very often, right? You you know, even if I can convince you to do it once, you're not going to do it again. And if I even tell you I'm going to give you a million dollars, you're still not going to do it again, right, for any long period of time. And I think the body really does not like to be in uncomfortable situations, whether it's pain, whether it's guilt, whether it's shame, whether it's feeling bad. And we didn't get that middle school lesson about how to navigate these really uncomfortable situations. That's why I send people to you because this takes time to unpack. And I truly believe that couples need a coach. They need a coach to go to and that help them really dial in to say, what is going on here? How do we talk about this without hurt, without shame, without guilt, just say words and really get to the core of what is it do we want as a couple? And that's what's so fun about sex therapy. I mean, I'm sure you just love it because you really can give people that guide of this is just, you know, um, it's just, it's such a wonderful concept, this coaching idea of, of helping people through these issues. Yeah, what I'm, what I'm gathering from what you're sharing is that there's a real psychosocial driver to all of this. And, and I think a lot of times what I see is that a couple does really well, sometimes for decades, things, things are just working. So nobody really talks about anything. And it's when things start to not work like they used to, things are not nearly as reliable, is oftentimes when you see this rapidly developing like responsive sexual dysfunction because we don't really know how to talk about this. It's, we... I, I say this all the time that I actually, my young patients with problems are ultimately going to have way more fun in the bedroom than my 70 year old patients who have had sex the same way every time for 
50 years with their partner, and now all of a sudden they develop issues, it's really traumatizing uh, for these patients. And you got to teach them. And to tell an 85-year-old man he needs to buy a vibrator, um, that's a special conversation, one I love to have, but it, it takes a certain uh, skill, you know, to be able to say, listen, technology has changed in the last 50 years. Let's, you know, let you use this motorized wheelchair to help you get around. Why don't we use, you know, something motorized to help you have more fun with your partner? Yes, and I can imagine an 85-year-old man struggling with the notion that he now is going to be quote-unquote replaced by a piece of technology. But I think you and I both know that it certainly is not you know, what that, what that is about. I also I, I think it's the key is whoever, you know, it, it's not who drives the joystick. It's that you're having joy, right? It's that it's like all that. about the joy. And I think that's the key. Dr. Rubin, as a urologist who treats men, women, people of all different genders, I imagine that you have a unique perspective on human sexuality. Going back a little bit to what we were talking about before, are we all more similar than we are different? Are we more different than we are similar? How do you make sense of that? I'm a big believer that we actually are a lot more similar um, than we are different. And I spend a lot of time thinking about the things I know about the male body parts and how they affect when they, they're turned into the female body parts and vice versa. And, and I think I am a better sexual medicine doctor because I take care of all genders. And I, I do, you know, I think we've spent too much time thinking and society spends too much time telling us how different we all are, that we miss the obvious similarities and we miss the spectrum that we are all on. Yes, the um, it seems like society tells us men have higher libidos than their female partners, but I see the opposite in my practice at times, right? There are plenty of couples, you know, where, where you know, heterosexual couples where the woman has a much higher libido than her partner. That's fine. That's normal. You know, I am never going to get a couple to be totally in sync where their libido are at every moment of every day at every time. It's not reality. Um, so I do spend, and I love educating. I love educating my male patients on female body parts and vice versa, because it just normalizes it. It medicalizes it in a way to make even the psychosocial is still medicine in my mind. It's still biology in my mind. And if I can help explain that, then it gives people the tools and the words to then go home and say, oh, honey, I've got high blood pressure and diabetes. And the reason I had a heart attack five years ago is the same reason I need to take Viagra and Cialis in order to get an erection. A man can talk about that much more easily than, oh, I got to take my man pill and there's something wrong with me. And not, you know, it just, you know, when you make it biology and a medical doctor thing, people feel more com confident and comfortable talking about it. That makes a lot of sense to me. On this podcast, we spend a lot of time talking about the role of the mind when it comes to male sexual dysfunction. And as you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of emphasis on biology for men, and there's a lot of emphasis on the psychosocial for women. I know that one of the areas that you focus on is the biology for women. Can you share with our listeners just a little bit of what women present in terms of some of the impact that the mind might be playing in their sexual function? So, you know, I think all women are biopsychosocial beings, right? So you can't take either any piece away from them. And so psychosocial, listen, if you're, um, if you've had a bunch of kids 
and you're working a full-time job and the kids are home doing homeschool with COVID and you've got, you know, uh, three meetings the next day and you don't know how you're going to get lunch done and your partner's not helping and you feel like, like the last thing and, and maybe they're, you know, uh, that person's love language is helping and uh, working together and solving problems and talking about the emotional labor and all of those things. And the man's love language is, well, at the end of the day, I just want to have sex and I want to hold you and touch you. And, and, and that's, that's pleasurable for me. So that should be pleasurable for you. Whereas many women are like, I don't want anyone to touch me ever again. Like, I just want to be left alone because there's always someone around. Um, and, and I think COVID has really brought those issues. You know, everyone has those issues during COVID whenever everyone's kind of locked down and does they don't get away. Um, so we see tons of psychosocial issues. Again, the idea that sex has to be, you know, qual- quantity over quality that you, you know, in order to have a good relationship, you must have sex once a week or once a day or once a month, you know, this idea that it has to be on a certain schedule. Um, I think that's, you know, a problem that we see and really focusing on quality and what that looks like and pleasure and, and really the goal of sex. You know, I think it's not strange for um, men to have an orgasm in a sexual encounter and women to not orgasm, right? We know that um, men orgasm about 98% of the time in a sexual encounter, whereas women, heterosexual women orgasm 66% of the time. So we have an orgasm gap in the country. Women can have multiple orgasms, right? Think to yourself, you know, the listeners is if you are in a heterosexual relationship, when was the last time you were with your partner where your partner had three orgasms and you had none? Would that be so bad? Would that be a bad sexual, a failed sexual encounter? Shouldn't your partner, doesn't your partner deserve that? How many encounters have you had where you orgasm and she doesn't? And that was normal to you. Right. So really pushing people to kind of think of what is normal, what is good sex, what is normal sex and really push those ideas. That's actually a perfect segue to the next topic that I really want to tackle here, which is uh, female sexual pleasure and female sexual response. And I think one of the fascinating things about the work that we do, um, certainly on the psychosocial side of it, is as we see societal attitudes shift how that has a direct impact on the individual mind. So one of the things that I see a lot in my office is uh, men who are in heterosexual relationships who are very focused on and preoccupied with eliciting a response out of a partner. This is a phenomenon that I, I can't say for sure, but I am doubtful if that existed even 50 or 60 or 70 years ago, where um, male sexual response was very much dependent on and reactive to female sexual response. So one of the things that I'm wondering is, is this a fair thing for a male or a man to be putting on himself? And what are some of the things that he should be expecting of himself to be able to elicit from a partner? What's reasonable? So I love that question. And I never think it is a man's responsibility to own the manual, to create the manual and come already trained of what to do. And I think society has totally screwed up and scrambled people's brains to make them think that that's normal. The idea that a a woman is going to have a partner come on his white horse and save the day and find every button that she's been missing and cause every bit of pleasure she never knew was possible 
is ridiculous, right? Um, and so I think we put too much pressure that men are supposed to come already programmed to know exactly because every partner's buttons are going to be different. And not knowing how to communicate about that and not knowing how, you know, it is just as much the each individual's responsibility to know what gives themselves pleasure and to explore together. You don't always have to explore alone. You can explore together, but seeing that as an exploration, some people like nipple stimulation. Some people after childbirth do not like nipple stimulation. And you have to be a grown up enough to say, honey, that move you've been doing for five years that I moaned and groaned and said that I liked, I actually am not liking it right now. So can we find new moves together? Why is that so hard for people to say, you know, couples, often after kids talk about constipation and vomiting and all of these disgusting things, but they can't talk about masturbation. They have no idea if their partners masturbate because they're so afraid to ask, you know, and they can't even talk about it. Why is orgasm such a bad thing? Why is it such a bad thing for someone to have, you know, uh, couples massages are great. Solo massages are great. That doesn't mean that you can't enjoy both of them. And so again, everyone has some, some people have different religious beliefs and things like that, but inherently pleasure is a good thing. Um, and I don't, I like to eat ice cream. I don't always have to eat ice cream with my partner in order to enjoy eating ice cream. Right. So I think really trying to understand having that conversation and making we're, we're good at things because we work hard at them, right? You are good at podcasting and sex therapy because you have worked really hard at both of those things and you show up and you consistently do them. The idea that we are supposed to be in like innate perfect sexual partners without any practice, without any education, without any trial and error is ridiculous. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes what I find is some of the men, heterosexual men in particular that I work with are just so preoccupied and they're, they're really just taking their partner's temperature all the time, looking for some kind of reaction. How did it go? How is it going? Is this good? Which I think on the one hand, it's great to be checking in. It really is. Like, it's great to ask, to learn, to have those conversations, but to be doing it at that frequency, I see that there are men that develop like this anxiety, like there's mm -hmm. an anxiety about their sexual performance and they're measuring that from their partners. And I think like you mentioned earlier, and I, I know this to be true, is that so many people respond so differently that I kind of feel like this isn't a fair measure for men to be taking on themselves. How loud, how loud was it? Oh, how, I totally, how much of a reaction? I, how I, to I totally agree. And every partner is going to be different and come from a different place. Um, I was uh, speaking with Justin Lemmler recently, who's so fun to talk to. And he was saying people, he used a, a, a phrase that I thought was really nice of, you know, people just have, um, mismatched genitals sometimes, right? Like if your partner is not fitting, you know, you guys don't connect in the exact way that, 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 that maybe another partner you connected with, that doesn't mean that you're inherently not meant to be together, right? There are many reasons why partners work or don't work, but understanding that if maybe our genitals are not fitting in a way that we want them to, are there technological things or things that we can do to still have pleasure and enjoy each other and know that like, you know, there's not so much you can do to change certain biological aspects, but that doesn't mean, mean they're bad or wrong. To wrap up, Dr. I'm wondering what message or what would you say to a man who is struggling with psychogenic erectile dysfunction and is really worried about how his partner is going to take that, um, is afraid to communicate, is worried that uh, his partner is going to have a miserable sexual experience 
with him eventually leave because it's just it's just so terrible. What what would you want to say to a man like this? What would you advise me to say to a man like this that I might be meeting with? You know, I think um, it's not a one size fits all. I wish it could be that I could say, okay, this is what we tell everyone with these issues. And I do believe that um, each person's story is unique and deserves like a really tailored opinion of what is going on because there are many medications, there are many um, anxiety disorders and OCD and, um, you know, all sorts of things uh, that can be at play. There are bad relationships, right? Sometimes I'd say you need a, you need a partner ectomy, you know, uh, 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 we need to get rid of the partner. I never say that, but sometimes in my head, of course, I think it, um, but I think it's, it's, having a team, right? If they have you to tell them, if they have a team that is really that they're um, working on it, we can all get better at sex, right? None of us are so good at sex, we can't get better at it, which sometimes mean fixing the communication, fixing the bio- biology behind it. It doesn't mean being a porn star. It often, it definitely doesn't mean lasting longer because, you know, um, average is five and a half minutes, right? That's normal. Five and a half minutes means half more time, but half less time, right? Um, size, penis size. The vagina actually has no idea how big a penis is up to a certain level. And so worrying about that, it does no good. You know, I think really just getting, I I like to tell people to kick everyone out of the bedroom, right? It should just be you and your partner. Your middle school soccer coach should not be in the bedroom with you. Your clergy should not be in the bedroom with you. Your parents should not be in the bedroom with you, right? All of these, these people in your life who have judged you, your Instagram followers definitely shouldn't be in the bedroom with you, right? And, And most people are not live casting their encounters. And yet we think sex should look a certain way, right? Instagram tells me it should look a certain way, but are those people really watching? Are you, do you know what kind of sex they're having? Cause you don't, you know? Yeah. And what, 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 one of the strong messages I was hearing in that is that you don't have to show up fully trained and ready to go with, you know, every possible technique and a full manual and knowledge about what exactly it is that your partner needs. This is unique to every person. It's unique to every couple. And in a relationship, you really have to work on communication and developing a sexual relationship that's sustainable over time. And that is not just something that you walk into ready to go on day one. I love that. I think that's wonderful. Okay. Well, Dr. Rubin, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. I cannot wait to get this out to our listeners because I know that so many guys who are in uh, relationships with women do worry about and struggle with a bunch of these topics. And I think helping them to really kind of wrap their heads around a lot of this is going to be helpful. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. For more information on today's topic and understanding how the mind impacts erectile dysfunction, please visit ErectionIQ.com. That's ErectionIQ.com.